and welcome. I'm Cindy Pena, your host for this inaugural episode of the Five Thesis Podcast, where together we will discuss ideas to help our Catholic Church heal and move forward. We start this first podcast from the beginning, from where the Five Thesis originated, a group of lay Catholics in the Washington, D.C. metro area, meeting around a kitchen table, concerned about the future of our church. We know we're not alone. In the aftermath of the shocking 2018 clergy sex abuse in Pennsylvania and the defrocking of former Archbishop of Washington Theodore McCarrick, many, many parishioners across the country, those who did not leave the church, wanted to find a way forward. We are among them. We met in August of 2018 to share ideas for rebuilding a more inclusive, transparent, and accountable Catholic Church. And from that meeting came the Five Thesis. That's what we'll be talking about today. With us are the women who were part of that initial group of parishioners who gathered around the kitchen table and agreed that we need to do something. Alice McDermott, an American writer and university professor who is sometimes called a Catholic writer for how she weaves Catholicism into her novels. Dr. Liz McCloskey, who leads Profiles in Spirit, a project by which Liz explores the relationship of faith and politics through the lens of public servants. Jean Heisel, a lifelong Catholic and Catholic-educated from pre-K to graduate school, from working at Catholic University to spending her life as a liturgical musician, she is committed to the future of our Catholic Church. And myself, a late bloomer of sorts, a Catholic by birth, more engaged in adulthood, and confirmed by choice in my 50s. Alice, let's start with you, because it was your kitchen table where we all came together a year ago. Take us back to that time, soon after the 2018 Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, and why that was a tipping point for us and so many others. Thanks, Cindy. Um, Yeah, it was a rough summer for Catholics, the summer of 2018, beginning, as you mentioned, um, with the revelations about Theodore McCarrick, um, and then the Pennsylvania Report on sexual abuse among the clergy coming out um, for all of us to see. As a Catholic woman and a mother um, with many Catholic friends, I found myself running into these friends um, in the grocery store, not necessarily in church, but yeah, (laughs) after church in the grocery store, here and there, and we were all um, more than dismayed. So I sent an email around in late August uh, and to friends far and wide and just said, we need to vent Uh, we need to talk, come to my house, I'll open a bottle of wine or two. Um, And not so much about what we should do, but just uh, that idea of let's gather uh, and and support each other. We are the church. Let's support each other through this. And um, if we're not going to leave, and many of us were not sure that wasn't the choice we would make, Um, at least we can uh, help each other through this transition. What we talked about in that uh, first gathering, and it was sort of amazing, I thought we would have about half a dozen, uh, 17 women showed up, and this being the Washington area, um, they were women from all walks of life, um, uh, lots of lawyers, of course, (laughs) um, but people in media, uh, people in the church, uh, we had... uh, one religious sister who was with us, 
Um, and scientists, we're scientists, scientists, uh, CIA, <laughs> all, yeah. all that sort of inside the Beltway stuff. Uh, and a lot of uh, anger, a lot of um, upset. Uh, and then because we were women, um, Catholic women who were used to getting things done, uh, the question of what are we going to do about it? Uh, how are we going to act on this? Um, so we left with the idea that two things. One thing we would try to do is to go to our own parishes and ask uh, for a prayer to be added to the prayers of the faithful at every Mass um, about reform, about the abuse uh, crisis um, and the other thing was that perhaps we could go to Baltimore when the bishops gathered that fall um, and petition for something, um, some of these uh, very necessary reforms that we were all intuiting but not quite ready to say exactly what they were. Um, and I think it was Liz who um, moved us to here's exactly what we need to say. So Liz, maybe you should pick it up from there. Well, I was very excited about the idea of going to Baltimore. And uh, a few weeks after we were at Alice's kitchen table, I was very energized and I was participating in a church retreat, my parish, Holy Trinity. And there was a listening session as part of this season of discernment that Holy Trinity Catholic Church had launched. Was that in response to? It was in response to the the crisis over the summer, and the season of discernment kicked off in September, two thousand eighteen. And this listening session at the church retreat was a very intense experience. And I, relatively new to the parish, and we're sitting in a very large circle with our pastor. Everybody's distraught, but there were. It was really just an opportunity to tell what you were most upset about, what you were most angry about. But there were certain themes that were running through many of the comments. And so um, I had in my head this idea of going to Baltimore. And as the conversation is going around the circle, I wrote down on my little sheet of paper, we really need a reformation. And started thinking, what would our thesis be? Could, could we come up with 95 and then I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> obviously we could come up with 95, but with short attention spans. Wouldn't fit on a, twi- on it a would tweet. Not, it wouldn't be as tweetable. Um, and people would sort of trail off and lose interest after the first year. But I, I sort of came up with five categories. And so when it came around to me, I said to my fellow parishioners, a group of us are going to go to Baltimore and we're going to nail something on the Basilica door. And it's these five points and who wants to come. Um, and a lot of people said yes, but uh, bringing the idea back to this group that met at Alice's is when we actually really chiseled it and massaged and came up with how could we have these five succinct points. And it was really um, that group and then others mm-hmm. who coalesced and did go to Baltimore and did not we nail. didn't nail it. We no. used, you know, non-harming painters. <laughs> <laughs> but it was respectful. It was red. Or was it, we used a red hammer. And we were very symbolic. Yes, it w- there was a hammer, but it was a soft, 
Um, it, it was wrapped in felt. Yes. But it was <laughs> symbolic. It was put up with tape that would not harm that beautiful, beautiful cathedral <laughs> and its doors. Yes. Yeah. It was. It, it so really was. Um, Martin Luther, out of love for the Catholic Church, had nailed those ninety-five theses on the church door in Germany. It was not to divide. It was out of love for his church. He wanted to see some really essential reforms and thought there was so much corruption. And that was, I think, the word that a lot of people use, like, ah, yes, our church is it's rotten. There's something rotten on the inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, uh, and it came, these five theses came from lay people. I mean, this is kind of a summation of what people were saying. And not just, I mean, there were, there were church meetings all across the country. Yes. yes. You know, we, yeah. we had them at St. Bart's. You all had them in Holy Trinity. And I know, there you know, Chicago, all across the country. We, we had contact with people in Chicago and Seattle and New York. Yeah, people uh, everywhere were looking for something. We're looking for change, for, you know, to vent, whatever it was. But, uh, of course, being women women who were looking for, you know, some kind of a call to action, we came up with the five thesis. Jeannie, what are the five thesis? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. Oh, right Give here. me the list. <laughs> <laughs> we have the bullet points, and then there's the explanation. So number one is full transparency. And you can see it on our website. It says, we want the church to release the names of the clergy in every diocese found by internal processes to be abusers. We want them pledged to fully cooperate without question and without qualification with all news and ongoing investigations initiated by the attorneys general, local prosecutors, and any other law enforcement bodies, especially when evidence points to abuse by clerics and negligence by those responsible over them. That's full transparency. That's full transparency. Like, let us know what's going on. An independent investigation. Independent investigation. And no longer pushing for these statute of limitations. Let them, let, back off. Mm -hmm. Let these names come out. Let us know what we're dealing with in our church. And and I think what's important about full transparency is if you have nothing to hide, you're going to open your doors. And you're going to open your doors to transparency. And I think that's what the church, that's the message the church needs to send that they have nothing to, they are no longer hiding and protecting. Is that right? With yes, the, and we're all about confession, too. If you do have something to hide, you must confess it and, and repent. Um, and we can't, have re- we can't have repentance, and we can't have redemption, and we can't have renewal um, if we don't have full transparency. Mm-hmm. And we can't have people in power who are unrepentant and who don't see that this is a problem. And You know, um, there have been survivor groups for years and years who have been calling for greater transparency and for civil and criminal actions and and also just to be heard. Well, that's what leads and into number two. Yes, and, and I, I think, at least for me personally, um, the years that I heard about that, I didn't realize how much it, I hate to say this, but how much it impacted me. Um, because uh, this happened to other people. And what changed for me was beginning to listen more closely to survivors. And then I realized how, in some ways, complicit I've been Mm -hmm. by just thinking this was a problem that other people needed to focus on. And so 
for me, a transformation happened when I began to meet survivors. Actually, when we went to Baltimore to post the five pieces, I hung around that week and I met so many people and I thought, why don't we all know these stories? Mm-hmm. Why have they been silenced? Like, if we all knew what had been going on, every single person in every parish, in every pew would want these reforms. And so that does lead to the second principle. And, and, and number two is survivors' voices, where we want to create and publicize a permanent and prominent place in every issue of every diocesan newspaper in the country for survivors of clergy abuse to share their stories. I mean, the diocese owe it to them. And I think it's really important that it come from the church. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people have raised the point that their survivors have been speaking out, that they've been interviewed. Many of them have written accounts of what happened to them um, that are published in the secular press that, or self-published uh, even. Um, but I think it's really important. And again, it, it flows from that full transparency for the church, for a diocesan newspaper to welcome these voices, to say, we are on your side. We want you to be heard. The institutional church wants you to be heard, even though we try to silence you for so many decades. And, and as opposed to what a certain cardinal um, may have said to you personally, that some people don't want their stories to be told. Well, how do you know until you give them the opportunity? And if they don't want their stories told, that's fine. But the people who, and, and perhaps... When they hear others, they don't. We don't need everybody's story told, but so many people will benefit from hearing what other people have gone through and know they're not alone. Well, mm-hmm. just like Liz, and, and even if you're not personally affected, hearing those stories is so powerful for for everybody. Um, Liz, go back to, um, or let's go to the simple living thesis, and where, how did that come about? <laughs> Oh, Jeannie, you want to talk about that one? Okay, that no. That go ahead, Liz. You can speak to it more. No, no, no. Because because Jean has a background in theater and drama, and so she was. Um, it was really your inspiration because ah, of yes. the symbolism, of right. The regalia. I love the you know the the church has incredibly beautiful art, and the world is blessed and enriched by the art that has been created through the church and through the individual artists love of God and their their spiritual inspiration Um, but we can't let the cart get before the horse we can't let the pomp and circumstance obscure what we're here for and what the mission is and some people get so caught up in the trappings of liturgy and make such a big deal out of it that um, you know another thing is in terms of penitence that the leadership of the church could show, and I and I'm actually been thrilled that there are bishops around the country, who are um, the bishop in Seattle, who are coming out saying, "Nope, this is not appropriate for me to live in a mansion. We're going to sell it. I'm going to find a place to live." Simple living is what we're saying is as a symbolic gesture of the commitment to dismantle clericalism, which Pope Francis has called for repeatedly. We are calling on the bishops and the cardinals to shed the royal raiment. Is that how you say that word? Raiment? Raiment, Raiment and regalia of the episcopate. Just wear black, guys. Drop the pink. Simple living. Simple, wearing the plain black garb and liturgical vestments of a parish priest and spending time in service to the poor 
and marginalized for the coming liturgical year. Take Uber, not your not your, <laughs> limo. Not your limo. Jeannie, yeah. I remember you saying our very at that very first meeting, uh, let's keep the princes in Disney World right. <laughs> and get them out of the church. I said, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, at the parish, I actually I can't believe I stood up in front of like the, the parish at our parish talk was a different parish than Liz's, where I said. We're Americans, and the the only princes we relate to are Disney princes. Okay, <laughs> these guys need to step down and be among right. the people. And I think the motivation—it's obviously just a symbolic gesture—but the idea was there's such a chasm between the clear the the leadership, the episcopate, really, the the hierarchy of the church, and the people, and the people who have suffered greatly at the hands of priests that they're responsible for. And so that mm-hmm. chasm is part of the problem. They they don't know. They haven't. Um, Monsignor Bransfield or Bishop Bransfield in West Virginia is another example who was living high on the hog and importing wines and taking private planes. And he's finally been called out on that. But that's got to gotta stop. We have reason that we're saying this. And it's a gesture I'm not saying, hey, you know, I'm not saying when they go to do the special liturgies and the, confirma- the confirmations. They can wear of pink. Course, of course. On the third, they can on wear the that third Sunday of Advent. It's, it's, not, it's rose, right? It's not pink. Right? Rose. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, for them to not, not to give up, you know, the liturgical, it's beautiful. I'm, I'm not a big fan of incense because I've had to sing through clouds of incense <laughs> at certain cathedrals, and it's really hard. But I get it. Um, we are a smells and bells church, and um, the, the incense has meaning, and it's very important to to a lot of people. So we sing through it, but um, to to not give it up, but to say tone it down, show that you're repentant. Well, I think uh, clericalism has become a buzzword uh, among the clergy. That let's blame that, um, and let's they and they can it. throw right. They don't define it, and most people think, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's blame clericalism. But again, we're about outward signs of inner grace. That's what Catholicism is all about. This is an opportunity for an outward sign by the clergy to say, I recognize that there is, as Liz said, this chasm between how I live my life and the people I should be serving as a pastor. And this is a way to show. Um, One bishop uh, did object, although he loved uh, all the other theses, but when we got to Simple Living... Um, he exclaimed, I'm not giving up my hat. <laughs> hey, we're not asking Time that. to give we're up the hat. But I remember <laughs> I re- the red hat, the, the, little, re- the little red No, the big, the, the mitre. Big oh, yeah. Well, when he mm. confirms people, when he does a big mass, the red mass or the whatever masses, the you know, special masses they do, that's fine. I, I remember being at a meeting once when somebody said, can you see a woman up there, you know, exactly. in wearing those clothes and, you know, being on this quote-unquote throne Probably not, right? And that takes us to the five thesis number four, mm-hmm. women in church leadership. I really <laughs> like this one. Um, so there was a commission. They finished their work to look into the history of women deacons in the church. So this is a live issue. Um, very easy to do to restore women. There's historical evidence that there were women. Actually, in the Paul's letter to the Romans, he talks about Phoebe the deacon. He doesn't say deaconess. The translation is deacon, uh, although sometimes people translate it that way because they want to distinguish. But so the first one is 
do what is already possible. It all, all it takes is for Pope Francis to say, let's do this. Um, women as voting members at meetings of the synod. There are lay men, uh, part of monastic orders, who have been given voting rights and they're not cardinals. The same could be done for women. There's nothing canonical that prevents it. Um, reopening the discussion of women's ordination. Some of us wanted to say ordain women, but we're just saying reopen the discussion, reverse that, um, I don't even Edict? know. Edict? Ban? <laughs> that closed door. The closed, where, where it's not it. even permitted to discuss the question. And a pope can reverse that just like a pope put it in place. And so we're asking the bishop, the group of bishops, the United States bishops, to put that before the pope and ask him to open the discussion again. And I like to think that if any of them are already there, that they are, are, would like to do that, that they would know that there are there is a group of lay people behind them. And, and if there are bishops out there who feel that way, is that we're with them and we're supporting them. And I would hope that there's a big group of women or people who would want women in the ordination. But we need to talk about it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, and then the last one, naming yeah. women as cardinals. So uh, most people didn't know that you do not have to be ordained to be a cardinal. The College of Cardinals, it, the Pope can choose anybody he would like to be in that leadership group. And he just recently, I think, named 13 more people to the College of Cardinals. He could he could name a woman. There are so many talented women in theology, in ministry, in church leadership, and on all levels. Lead, so leading their orders. Yeah. You know, women yeah. in consecrated life who are so theologians. I, so I guess that's a misnomer. People think that in order to become a cardinal, you have to be a priest and, and an archbishop. And, and that's the, that is the tradition. That's the practice. But there's nothing that permits a pope from expanding the College of Cardinals to non-ordained people. They're so missing out on a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. Diversity yes. of voice is and so I, important. And I think this thesis um, about women in the church really speaks to the younger generation that the church has lost um, and is continuing to lose. And I think this, again, goes back to the roots of this movement um, as mothers in the church. A lot of what we spoke about at that very first meeting is what do we say to our children, our children who um, we, with great purpose, sent to Catholic schools. Um, that and we great sacrifice. And sacrifice. And, and we gave them this faith, and they're turning to us and saying, this? This? Where I don't see myself Where as a I woman? don't see myself? Mm -hmm. Where would you ask me as a woman, as a Catholic woman, to go into any profession where women cannot have power? Mom, would you? Of course you wouldn't. Right. Um, so that idea of uh, welcoming the younger generation and moving forward into the 21st century for the church has to, has to include and equality for women. No, and I just want to echo that, that at that dinner or that time around your table, um, that was what grieved a lot of us, with our children, our sons and our daughters that were not staying in the church. And I remember, I think, Jean, you said, I want there to be a church left where my grandbabies can be baptized, where we can, we, where we can bury 
our beloved. We, we, these rituals of birthing and, and dying and all the phases in between, is the church going to be there for us? Our culture is dying. It's, it's, it's fading away. Our Catholic. Because it's our not Catholic inclusive. It's not, it's in, not it's inclusive. A, it's not the, the younger generation, again, that goes back to that word corruption and complicity. They see the corruption. Um, and, and what they're asking us is, if I am a member of this church, if I sit through Mass, if I continue this culture, I am complicit in the corruption. And I think something that's interesting, so all of us are in our 50s. I don't think I'm giving anything away. Or, <laughs> or 60s. Uh, and I think uh, one of us said that, and I don't remember who, to one of the, a younger person, maybe a daughter or niece, you know, we need you all to be leading this reform effort. And they turned around, this woman, young woman, and said, no, we need you to, because we need to see that it's worth saving. And so part of I mean, this is the the worst thing for me isn't necessarily those who are angry and disheartened. It's those who don't care. Mm. Yes. I don't care. Those who are fleeing. Right. Well, I, right. oh, why well. should I care about the why, why should I care this? about a church that doesn't respect me? Yeah. They care about the crisis. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. They care deeply about that. But do they care about reforming and... Is it worth saving? Uh, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. That's... that that is more painful sometimes than the disillusionment and the feeling of grief that a young person might feel about their church. So that brings us to the fifth thesis. That's why we pray. (laughs) Because we're up against it. What is that one, Alice? (laughs) Well, and that's what we came, that's what it all came down to, and that's why it's the last one, because we begin and end on a prayer, and this was the prayer for a Reformed church that we really worked very hard on the wording back and forth and Liz was in touch with prominent theologians on her on her Rolodex I know that's an old word but you know <laughs> and the and the we was an email chain it wasn't it, just the, oh my, the four of oh, us it sitting was a broader here it was very this. broad yeah and people wouldn't you know and and I'm s- sitting here with some really amazing wordsmiths and um, this is what it this was this was the prayer that resulted from that and we like to think the holy spirit had a little bit to do with it and just a little preface is that um credit to Ilya delio who is an amazing theologian who really her words were the inspiration for, for the and a little bit love. of vatican too and a little vatican too <laughs> thrown into yep All right we'll ask that you to impact that later but she we would our, so our fifth the number five of the thesis is uh, pray for a reformed church and that we would require every parish in every diocese to include this prayer or one based on it every Sunday in the prayers of the faithful during the next three liturgical years, because we do have A, B, and C, so it would be all, go through all the readings. And the prayer is this, that from this community of gathered people will rise a new church, a church that protects the abused and the marginalized, ministering to all in search of healing, a church that strives continually to overcome every type of discrimination, whether social or cultural, whether based on gender, race, color, social condition, sexual orientation, language, or religion, in order to pave the way for a new future of joy and hope. We pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. So how can people get involved? What are the ways that people who are listening to this podcast, who are sharing it with others, what can we do as a community of concerned Catholics? Isn't that what we've struggled with? Mm-hmm. 
Well, we did a podcast. <laughs> and we're going to do more. Yeah, we have we're a Facebook page, and we'd love to see you all join in. And and the Facebook page we started, I mean, we've been reluctant. I was reluctant to get on to certain forms of social media. Twitter, I find that the Catholic Twitterverse, uh, it wasn't going to be productive for us. Um, but uh, in Facebook, what the goal of the Facebook page for us is to share where the five theses are working and to elevate those who are using, who are, who are living simply, um, who are calling for reform, who are working and doing things from all around the world. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, groups that I use, uh, I will post a lot on, uh, is is uh, we are the church. We are Church Ireland, and there's uh, groups from all over the world because this we are a universal church. So you'll see posts, but we. Uh, we have a small following. We'd love to have more. We'd love to have input. And that's five thesis on Facebook. The yes, number the five. number five, capital T H E S E S, and it's yeah, it's a positive place where we want to share where reform is happening. And that um, is also our, the website address that we have. The number five, five thesis dot com. Right. I have to. I have to apologize. The 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 website hasn't been updated in a while. That's busy. That's, because people are busy. <laughs> and well, and, and we, there hasn't, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes reform happens at such a clip that you don't know what to put up. And then sometimes not, not, you don't know what's happening. So it seems like the Facebook page was a little more dynamic with, with the being able to post news. I don't want to put anything on the, on the website that, because that's going to be up for a while. It seems like that's more chiseled in stone. So Well, and one of the, I think, um, really great suggestions that you had, Jean, is for people wherever you are in the country or the world to just gather in a small group, take these five theses, think about them, rework them if you have a different way of saying it or a different emphasis you want to put on it. Um, But form community in your parish, in your diocese, with other people that are seeking reform, and then put pressure on your own bishop. Because the bishops, what, what we've learned in this process is they they are trying to listen. And so when we went to Baltimore, uh, just in the orbit of the bishops' conference a year ago in uh, Liz November, was amazing. You were amazing. You well, just kind of hung out and, like, talked to people. I, it was I, great. I talked to a number of bishops, and, and some were more receptive than others, but they would take the card. We have these cards, which... You can order um, on, you can get on the website, you can download and print, or if you really, you know, don't have the facility to do that, we'll send them to you. Cards with the five theses written on them. With them. So I, I gave those to people and then heard back from them and, and started some conversations with some bishops who were very receptive. And um, one of the people I really admire a lot who writes for Religious News Service, Tom Reese, he has worked a lot in... Uh, the Vatican and with folks in the Vatican and and others um, have said the same thing. They've said they want to hear from you. Write a letter to your bishop. They, it's not like members of Congress. I worked <laughs> on the Hill. I know how those letters work and the legislative correspondents <coughs> respond and whatnot. Bishops don't get tons of letters, especially from Catholics who want reform. Mm-hmm. They don't hear from us. And so I have heard in so many different ways from so many different sources communicate with your bishop. So that's something uh, from the website. If you go on the website and you join in, there's a place where you can join in. Um, there are also suggestions about how to just meet with a small group. And yes. you're connected to a broader movement, but you're, you're, 
you're doing something where you are. I think what's really powerful, Alice, is about how this really is a um, a lay person's movement. I mean, this really is isn't a, a an organized, sponsored by group, right? Not at all. Yes, um, because we are the church. We we are the church, um, and I think what we're doing for one another, um, uh, Catholics, um, is we are encouraging each other to imagine a reformed church. And there's joy in that, and there's hope in that. Um, when we are full of despair and dismay and feeling complicit in a corrupt institution, um, the simplicity of these things could happen. There could be a woman cardinal. There could be a woman deacon at your next mass. Um, the church could say this prayer welcoming everyone as we are called to do. Just to imagine these reforms taking place allows us, I think, to feel hope um, and maybe offer to the next generation of Catholics that hope and joy for a different future. And if any of these suggestions scare you or put you off, I'd I'd encourage you to put it to prayer and ask why. Mm -hmm. And let the Holy Spirit work through you, work through your questions, and be open to this. So we want to leave you all, our audience today, because we um, uh, want, don't want, we, we value your time, and we're grateful that you all are listening. Um, but we want to leave you today with a call to action that we just mentioned. Pray, keep communicating, be present in your church, share the five theses, contact your bishop, and encourage and uplift others. We are here to encourage the future of the Catholic faith and the church. We are here to be part of that. Uh, we leave you today with this message to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. We call on our Roman Catholic bishops throughout the world to bring light to the past, to demonstrate change in the present, and to build for the future of our church. Out of love for our church, we Catholic women and men offer the following steps, the five theses, as necessary actions for our bishops. With faith and hope, we proffer these reforms in order to ensure the future of our beloved church for ourselves, for our children, and for generations to come. Thank you all for listening to the Five Theses Podcast.